Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. This is the wrong time to take our cue from Charles Darwin. In a survival of the fittest economy, most businesses simply won't make it right now. I love Billy Paul. But only the strong survive is the wrong anthem for the age of COVID-19. But I do think that's where we're headed. And even after a good day like this one with the Dow gained 307 points, S&P climbed 1.15%, NASDAQ advanced 0.91%. The thing is, the averages are dominated by the fittest stocks, the ones with the strongest balance sheets that will be available to survive, and they will, be, and they will do so where most commerce, when most commerce is on hiatus. When we get out of hiatus, they'll still be there. But other companies... Lesser known, but still in the S&P 500, need credit to make it through. Not because they're reckless, not because they're poorly managed, but because it's impossible to plan for this kind of economic catastrophe. And I worry that many of them, and I'm not don't, including, of course, all the small and mid-sized businesses that aren't even public, I'm worried that they're doomed. Doomed. Now, I've said endlessly that we don't trade luncheonettes around here or nail salons or gyms, although we do have Planet Fitness on the show later tonight. However, there are plenty of publicly traded companies that supply these small and medium-sized businesses that I fear are doomed. And more important, if we keep seeing jobless numbers like we had this morning, another 3 million people out of work, this could, now, this could be an, an extinction level for small businesses, the ones we love. We might be headed for a situation where only a few gigantic companies dominate uh, everything because their competitors, they all went under. And that is a grim future. If we let it happen, if we, all, if we allow survival of the fittest to run its course, it will crush us as a nation. But will it crush the stock market? Believe it or not, that's less clear cut. In the last couple of days, we've heard from four, four big name individuals who put tremendous pressure on the market. First, we had Dr. Fauci, who sounded very worried about the impact of reopening the economy, pointing out that we could see more big outbreaks in the fall. He was pretty unequivocal. Actually, I thought he was pretty frightening. So unequivocal that President Trump scolded him about it. Now, I'm not going to second-guess this man, Dr. Fauci, in the course of this pandemic. That's his department, and he is a serious practitioner. My department is helping you figure out what a prolonged shutdown would do to the stock market. Sell, sell, sell. And i got to tell you, without a lot more assistance from the federal government, I think it would cause, yes, a second Great Depression. Fauci hurt the market with his negativity. But not as badly as Fed Chief Jerome Powell did when he spoke yesterday. Powell traced out an almost apocalyptic scenario if the government doesn't take more action to save commerce. You know what? The man's dead right. 
While a lot of people in Wall Street didn't want to hear what he had to say, I had to say, I found Powell's testimony actually reassuring. The worst thing we could possibly have right now is a Fed chief who doesn't understand the scale of the crisis and thinks we should just let the economy fend for itself. I was an early critic of Powell when he raised rates too aggressively at the end of 2018. Oh, but the guy has learned his lesson. He caught this meltdown earlier, earlier than almost everybody. He's been instrumental in making credit available to big companies that need to survive uh, and, and probably would have gone belly up already. Can you imagine already if it weren't for this man? Millions of jobs this guy has already saved. Now, I don't like being in this situation, but at least the guy running the Federal Reserve gets it. If Powell said everything would be fine, now that would be a reason to sell. We also had two very important money managers making grim pronouncements. Stan Druckenmiller, a guy with a great track record, was quoted as disliking this market intensely. Now, I didn't even hear a speech. I'm not even sure that was his view, but that's how it was conveyed and it rang alarm bills. Same thing happened with another legend, David Tepper. Called in on Scott Wapner's halftime report. I was on the show, and he said he didn't like the setup. Both guys are smart, seasoned, and most important, honest people. But remember, they're playing for themselves, and they're not going to come out every single day and tell you what they do. Now, after that kind of quartet pileup, though, it's no wonder the averages got crushed. After all, we know the current quarter will be off. Maybe, maybe we have like 30, maybe we have like 40 million people unemployed for heaven's sake. So it's hard to believe the market can keep climbing. Let's say the bears are right. What does that mean? All right, let's follow through. Let's follow their logic. Okay, first off, almost every business runs on credit. That's what they do. It's not that they're reckless. It's just how commerce works. Now, when your business is interrupted by a natural disaster, a flood, a, well, let's, uh, let's say a storm, you have insurance, so a company doesn't even skip a beat, a fire, okay? But many of these business interruption insurance policies have carve-outs for a pandemic. So what happens when we have this virus running rampant and the economy shuts down and the government deems your business non-essential, as it did to almost every small, medium-sized business there is? It means, well, you're just trying not to default, trying not to get evicted, you're trying to put food on the table, and you're not. You can't, and your workers can't. Take a look around at every business you see on the streets where you live. Do you know that most of them won't make it unless the government gives another, us another bailout? I'm not kidding. I mean, we have a charity fund for Summit that I contributed, but I, I see it coming. So do you. But the companies with strong balance sheets, oh, they make it. They profit. They win. That's why I included Walmart, Amazon, and Costco in the Kramer COVID-19 index. And yes, I wish I'd included Target. We will not be up. We won't be the exact like the old Soviet Union, which really only had one chain, GUM gum. But you know what? We're going to be we'll be way too close to that for comfort, like the old Soviet Union. What the heck will we do with the tens of millions of people who worked in the dead retailers? Beats me. Same with the restaurants. We got some numbers uh, from Chipotle today from a very good analyst who argued that they're now making as much money as they were before the pandemic. They got terrific technology. They can spend. They got a great balance sheet. We heard from another analyst, Wendy's Breakfast Success. Seattle newspaper reported that Starbucks might be able to get rent concessions because rents are coming way down and they're powerful. Uh, But other than those three and let's say McDonald's, Burger King, Domino's, Burger King's quick serve uh, and and Wingstop, I have a hard time imagining many other players making it. Uh, Guys, this is it. This is America without a bailout. Right here. It's where you'll eat. It's where you'll buy. This is it. Order this. It comes to your house. You can pick it up here. These are boxes. You got to wait 24 hours, you know, because of that stuff. Great balance sheet. Hey, good. They got the breakfast bacon here. The rest are dice rolls where you can only operate at 50% of capacity, which is what happens at a restaurant. Well, you have to take your customer's temperature. 
We can't have a country with less than a dozen national retail and restaurant chains. Don't get me wrong. It won't hurt your ability to make money in the stock market. Just buy these stocks. They've got the balance sheets to handle anything we throw at them. We know people shop and eat there because they have to shop and eat somewhere. No, the problem with this situation is that it's a rigged survival of the fittest. If the government forces your enterprise to shut down, it should compensate you for the business you're losing. There are plenty of companies that could survive and even thrive with that without the lockdown followed by the physical distancing rules uh, that we'll be stuck with until there's a vaccine. That's why I like the term business interruption insurance that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin talked about. And I think PPP is sensational. The longer the pandemic goes, the more help we will need to open up. State governments have put these businesses on the path to insolvency. And even if they had a good reason for doing that, we don't want to look back in this period where most small enterprises and medium-sized went under because the government told them to go under. Judging by the action of the bank stocks until today, the vast majority of the smaller businesses won't be able to get credit. It would be crazy just to let them wither and die. The bottom, how many hopes and dreams? The bottom line, without more stimulus, I think you should just buy the big change that can survive the lockdown and a slow reopening of the economy. Oh, these all thrive either way. I think that's terrible for the country. It's like an economic coup by big business at the expense of everyone else. But it doesn't have to be terrible for your portfolio. Tyler in Missouri. Tyler. Hey, Jim. We're going to get your outlook today on uh, Synchrony Financial, ticker SY. No, no, we, we can't uh, trade down. Man, we got credit problems throughout the system. They're just being masked right now by the fine actions by the Federal Reserve. We're not going to gamble. That's gambling. I don't like to gamble. Let's go to Sean in Florida. Sean. Hey, Jim, a big booyah from Tampa, Florida. How are you? Nice. I like your quarterback. What's going on? Uh, I love the show, and thanks for all your hard work over the years. Thank you. And for navigating us through this crisis. Uh, with businesses beginning to slowly reopen, especially restaurants, stores, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, cleanliness is going to be a major part of operations for the foreseeable future. With products and services from uniforms and PBE, restaurant supplies, restroom supplies, chemical services, what are your thoughts on Cintas now? That was a great quarter, Cintas. Cintas was great. It was a fabulous quarter. They're indispensable. That's a really good call. I was actually going to do a piece tonight on Cintas, but we got so many guests every night, I can't. you got a winner in Cintas. Call much higher. Dave in Florida, much higher. Dave. Hey, Jim. My question may be one of simple math, but surrounds share valuation after companies have taken actions at the Luther chairs. Yeah. Uh, a number of companies have done that uh, in this crisis. But what participated the, uh, precipitated the question came from the interview you did with Southwest CEO. While not particularly interested in airline stocks right, right now, I thought perhaps I ought to add it to my watch list as the best of breed should the opportunity No, no, because, uh, you know, because that's, you'll be in a house, oh, that's the best of breed in, in a bad neighborhood. And, that, you know, this market is about the haves, of which there are $11 trillion worth, and the have-nots, of which there are about $16 trillion worth. And we got to stay out of the $16 trillion, even though they're real visible and they're household names. All right. It's a survival of the fittest economy if something isn't done. So what do you do? Well, here it is. This is your insurance policy, your business interruption insurance. On Mad Money Tonight, what will your gym look like in a COVID-19 world? I'm talking the future of fitness with the CEO of Planet Fitness as they open. Then what the heck was the sell-off we just went through? And is it time to sound sound all clear? Uh, We'll check the charts to find out. And is it time to curb your enthusiasm on some of the cloud stocks? Or could their recent pullbacks be... Buying opportunities. I'm on Altrix, one of my old faves, to find out. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag MadTweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com. 
or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. As we gradually reopen the economy, what happens to the businesses that are widely seen as, say, let's say, not as safe as other enterprises during the pandemic? Think gyms and think about the dominant gym chain. Planet Fitness. In the before time, Planet Fitness was a fabulous growth story. It was taking share and taking names all over the country. Then we went into lockdown and they had to shut down most of their fitness centers and furlough the bulk of their employees. When the company reported last week, they naturally, of course, missed a quarter. Bottom line, miss. Management couldn't really give guidance because they're hostage to both the virus and, of course, the government. The question is, how much of that is already baked in? I think the market overreacted when the stock plunged from the 80s in February to the 20s in March, then rebounded to the mid-60s, and that seems a little too optimistic. Maybe let's wait to hear over the past few days, pull back to 51. Wall Street's feeling less sanguine about our ability to reopen. So is the stock enticing at these levels, or is it too soon? Let's dig deeper with Chris Rondo. He's the CEO of Planet Fitness. Find out how he's approaching the reopening process and what that means for the fitness industry. Mr. Rondo, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, Chris, if there's anyone who can handle what's going on right now as a CEO, I know it's you. Uh, (laughs) I know you can. You're not stoppable. And I know this is a tough time. How is the reopening going? I know you got a couple of them that are already open. Yeah, yeah, we started uh, at the call. We had about five open, Utah and some in Georgia. Currently, we have about 50 open um, and really encourage what I'm seeing, Jim. It's, um, you know, slight cancellation bump in the very first day. After that, normal as a normal May would be. And acquisition joins, new joins, is on par for last year. So I'm really encouraged, mostly because there's no marketing out there either. This is just a soft opening. So the fact that we're doing this many joins on just a normal May opening, I'm, I'm really pleased so far. Uh, one of my themes in the show, I know you watch, is that uh, there are some real winners uh, when the smoke clears, so to speak. Uh, and when I was thinking about and read all your work, I mean, Gold's Gym, no, 24-hour fitness. The other guys may not be able to get through this, but you've got a great uh, franchise group and got lots of different uh, ways to be able to make money. You may be the last man standing in the gym business. Yeah, I, I truly believe that this uh, will create a huge competitive advantage for us, bigger than we even had before. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, you know, a strong franchise system, the average franchisee's got 15 to 20 stores, EBITDA margins in the high 30s to low 40% in the four walls, um, and multi-store operators, so they have very diversified. So they might have, you know, 20 clubs in three different states. So some clubs are already open for them. Some may be a little longer, so they're diversified. So I think you're right. We're going to come out of this, and the competitive moat will be wider. Um, and I think we'll probably be where we would have been in five years. I think probably in 12 months will be a much better spot. I've come to that same conclusion. Now, I know that you mentioned not every franchise is as well capitalized as the others. What are you going to do to help the ones that are faithful but uh, had some no forbearance from the landlords and really need a chance to survive? 
Yeah, you know, luckily we've been really, really good with the land. Landlords have been very accommodating. Lenders have been very accommodating. I think that because our growth history, um, almost zero closures in our history of 28 years. So they really want us to be there on the other end of this. So very accommodating. So we don't have any franchisees now that are waving the white flag saying, I, I'm not going to make it. They're just eager to get the stores open and start selling memberships again and servicing our members that have been waiting for to work out. Okay, so how do you uh, clean a, a gym or equipment so that, uh, let's say I want to do a circuit. I, I mean, to me, a circuit's dangerous. I don't want me going to every different machine. Do I stay with one machine when I'm at your place? Yeah, so with our clubs, and even before this virus, for decades we've had cleaning stations throughout the entire club with sanitization solution and paper towels readily available for staff and members to use. And our member etiquette is very diligent. I mean, members clean up the stuff. They wipe down before. They wipe down after. And now we're just really making sure that we're dialing that in for pre-opening, um, training our staff, getting our, our etiquette down. Big flags on our sanitization stations throughout the entire club so you can see them from 30 feet away where the closest one is. Um, and I really think, Ed, Jim, think about what public place do you go to that has clean solution and paper towels readily available for their customers to use when they touch anything? And there's almost no other business you go to that has that available and we do so i think in a lot of ways the gym industry gets a bad rap and i think i think we're in a good spot i think people i don't think there's really much to worry about as long as you clean before and after with the solution that's approved by the government to clean to kill the covid virus all right let's be philosophic for a second how is it possible when you have a disease that really hurts people who are obese really hurts people who are out of shape really hurts people who are uh, don't have the right body. How is it possible that we, in this society, make liquor an essential business, but we close gyms? I know, I know. And I think we know that exercise builds a new system, and, and even the even emotionally, I mean, like from the stress people are going through, um, it's really, I'm, I think it's a necessity. I think there's stipulations, maybe of less people in the gym, that makes some sense, for sure, during situations like this, but... I really think this is Jim need to get open. I mean, it's a good thing to people to work out. And I really believe that coming out of this gym, that people will have a renewed um, awareness and a renewed appreciation for the importance of health and fitness. Um, when you look at the obesity and some of the fatalities out there, it's important. It's important that people exercise, and take care of their health. And I think this will could create a wellness boom here in the years to come. I'm in total agreement. Now, I saw that you do uh, had a huge number of uh, media impressions, 4.5 billion on your at home. And then I look at this Peloton; it's worth 12 billion. I look at yours; you're, you're worth like one third of that. Uh, I, I, maybe you can explain to me the disparity. Yeah, I mean, I think people are, are skeptical of the gym business. I think maybe, you know, once they see us open, I'm, I'm a strong believer. I think we started in Puerto Rico when we were closed after Hurricane Maria for, for some clubs for three, six months. They opened. People were joining. People working out like it never happened. People are eager to get back out to society and get, live normal again. Um, I, so I think, you know, I can't speak for Peloton, but we're going to be in a good spot. I'm looking forward to getting it open. And people will be, I think, pleasantly surprised when they see how the clubs react post um, post opening. I think people will be very happy. So do you think both people who are uh, older and afraid of the disease and also millennials uh, both attracted right now, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. I think we'll see uh, millennials right now in the clubs that are open 
are skewing more usage, Gen Zs, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more male right now usage. So I think the boomers might be a little bit more angst to come out uh, back to, to working out. But I think long term, people will snap back and want to get on with their life and, and just stay healthy and work out, whether it's, you know, I think at home as well as in club. I think at home is important, but I don't think you ever get the true gym experience as you will uh, in a real bricks and mortar. I uh, couldn't agree more. That is Chris Rondo, CEO of Planet Fitness, PLNT. Do not bet against this man. Mad Money is back into the break. All right, what the heck was that sell-off we just went through? Is it over? After cruising steadily higher for a month and a half, the market slammed headfirst into a concrete retaining wall on Tuesday afternoon. Then we rolled over some more yesterday. One last leg down this morning before the averages turned around. Is it over? Was this a garden variety pullback, the kind that tends to run its course after three days? Or was it something more ominous? For the better part of two months, Wall Street's had a surprisingly upbeat attitude given the unemployment, right? I mean, at the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Business has fallen off a cliff. But the bulls argue that that's priced in. The market's already crashed. That's happened in March. This time around, the government acted swiftly to limit the damage. That was the dominant narrative until a couple days ago. So has this week changed anything? I think it's important to take the market's temperature here, which is why we're doing a special Thursday off the charts with Mark Sebastian. He is a brilliant technician who's the founder of OptionPit.com, as well as being my colleague at RealMoney.com, where I blog. The guy's the resident volatility expert. I'll tell you, he is an expert. Let's get a clearer picture. Sebastian's got a terrific read on the CBOE volatility index, and we call that, of course, the VIX for short. It's commonly known as the fear gauge. It's a great proxy for the overall level of panic in the market, and it's allowed Sebastian to make some phenomenal calls at extreme moments for this show. Normally, the VIX and the major benchmarks trade in opposite directions. So, of course, see, when the S&P 500 goes down, the VIX is supposed to go up because people are getting scared. When the S&P goes up, the terror retreats and the VIX goes back down. Got that? Sometimes, though, these normal relationships break down. And when that happens, it's often a signal that the market's poised to change its trajectory. So take a look at this pair of charts of the S&P 500 and the volatility index, okay? And you can see where this is. This is the daily chart. Uh, before this week, Sebastian notes that we were seeing a, the relatively consistent pattern that we should see as the S&P rebounded from the bottom in March. Well, what happened, of course, uh, they made a series of higher highs and, uh, and, low, and higher lows. The VIX steadily declined with a series of lower highs and lower lows. Exactly what's supposed to happen. Of course, Sebastian, that's the textbook, okay? You expect to see it in a market that's coming out of a crisis. And once again, you go like that and you go like that. That's typical behavior. But, and this is a very big but, from the market's perspective, this was a very short crisis. It really only lasted from late February through late March, and that's unusual. Typically, there's a lot more pain before we get this kind of pattern. There's one other major difference. The VIX spiked dramatically in March. All right, Sebastian points out that usually you get a big pop, and then the VIX subsides, then there's one more pop, a kind of echo, stocks get slammed again, and that's what Sebastian expected this time around. A second spike in the volatility index that's lower than the first one, with the S&P 500 giving you one last la uh, leg down. You can see this is an example of that happening. You may remember that horrible time right here when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Okay, well, other things happened too. But this time, the VIX just came right back down and stayed down as the market roared. There's been no echo this time around. At least not yet. So we've got to ask ourselves, what if that echo started when the market rolled over two days ago? Check out the action in the S&P 500 and the VIX over the past couple weeks. 
When the market rolled over this week, the VIX blew out. Look at this. In a matter, it's just in a matter of 36 hours. Look at this. The volatility index went from the mid-20s to the high 30s. It peaked at 39 this morning for pulling back to the low 30s as the market bounced. For weeks, Sebastian's been waiting for the other shoe to drop, and he thinks this is it. The fact that the average rebounded today is not necessarily a positive from his perspective. It just means we're seeing enormous volatility. And to Mark, enormous volatility is not a healthy market. All right? That's what you've got to remember. It's not healthy. Yet the bad news is that the charts as interpreted by Mark Sebastian suggest that today's rebound is just a temporary reprieve from what could be a bigger sell-off. It makes sense given the scenario I traced out at the top of the show. But once the last leg uh, runs out, well, then he thinks we could get a real viable bottom. I wouldn't be surprised if he's right, but there could be some pain before it. Let's go to Mark in Massachusetts. Mark. God bless Kramerica. This yeah. is my first maiden call to you, Jim. I'm a oh, I love you, man. Thank you for calling in. What's going on? Oh, not too much. Uh, I have a, a two-part uh, question for you. Uh, you said last night uh, that these uh, typical sell-offs go for about three days and then look to start buying in the afternoon. That's exactly right. what happened today. So Thank you. Thank that you. That was a good call. I, I wanted you. to ask you, how come it's usually a three-day time length? And really, my question is, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Sox Index bounced off a double top resistance at 1800. Most semiconductors uh, companies reported bad earnings, and AMAT just did just now tonight. Yet it's up, of course. Well, no, so that was a good quarter. Do- that was a good quarter, and they did really good. They, they did a uh, very good forecast. And don't forget, Taiwan Semi committed to uh, building a plant uh, in Arizona. So this was exactly what we wanted to see. Uh, and the pattern that we that we caught is just a pattern that's been ingrained with me and Karen Kramer for years and years and years. Let's go to Steve in Florida, please. Steve. Top of the day to you, Jim, the man with the plan. <laughs> you betcha. I'm uh, calling about GE that I've purchased many times over the years. And right. after getting burned each time, I've dumped it. Yeah. Now, I haven't bought since Larry Culp became the new CEO. And I know that you're a fan of him as I am. After missing first quarter estimates, he's had to make job cuts in the aviation industry. Is it looking good for the company? Now, uh, no. GE is at an all-time low. I would appreciate some advice as to whether you would consider it a buy or do I wait? And if I so, think you have to wait. I'll tell you why. Because he's basically telling you, look, it's not going to be this year. And if it's not going to be this year, I got a lot of stocks that are down a lot that it is going to be this year. So we're going to take a pass on that one. Uh, It just doesn't have the – it's got the aerospace, and you know what's going on there. Let's go to Max in California. Max. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Booyah to you, my friend. What's going on? I watch your show for over 15 years. There you go. Thank you. You know, but sad to see people say negative stuff on Twitter with anonymous names. Forget them. The hell with them. Jimmy Chill is here to stay. Correct. I got a question for you. Okay. Booking holding share price fell 33% year to date. Airlines, cruise lines, hotels have been hit hard. While booking core business is tied to these, I believe it is more an online technology company. Analysts are mixed on this once Kramer fades stock. The company looks cheap at this point, trading at 17 times earnings. My question, 
Is booking stocks still a buy? See, Max, I disagree with you that it's cheap. I mean, I look, we got these all these hotshot head fund guys, and they say that something's overvalued. I look at booking. I know it's really well run, and the stock has crashed. But I have no catalyst. And if it's going to be at 17 times earnings, I need a catalyst, and I don't have one. So I'm going to take a pass on that. And travel and leisure, you know, has not really been. Uh, it's been an area that I said it's in a bear market. And it's staying there. The chart suggests today's reprieve was only temporary. But after this last leg lower, hey, maybe it's time to buy. There's much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Altrax. How is the company managing through the crisis? I've got the CEO. Then looking for a financial player that works in an uncertain market? I've got one for you. I'll reveal the name when I sit down with the CEO. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. worried should we be about some of these rapidly growing enterprise software companies that so many say are overbought and are too expensive? Take AlterX, the business intelligence play with a platform that makes it easy to prepare and analyze data from multiple different sources. Before the pandemic, AlterX was one of the hottest stocks on the planet. Then the market crashed, and, and this stock was literally cut in half in a little over a month. Since the bottom, though, it's come roaring back. But last week, the company reported, while the headline numbers were good, the guidance for the current quarter left a little bit of desire. Plus, management's commentary, what I found worrisome. In the old days, the only question was how fast can AlterX grow? Now they're talking about slowing activity cycle, uh, sales cycles. Uh, they're lengthening, customers pausing, spending. They even use the word churn. All that's understandable. It's not their fault. I mean, we're in a COVID-induced recession. But you don't want to hear these things from about high-flying growth stock. Still, the company's got a great product that's loved by all the smart young people I know who are sick of wrestling with traditional dumb spreadsheets. And the stock's down roughly 35 bucks from its highs. Is that enough punishment? Let's check in with Dean Stoker. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Alterex to get a better sense of how the quarter's doing. Mr. Stoker, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. All right. So, sir, a lot of people felt you you got those kinds of comments about whether your company is really slowing, that there's some thing you've got customers in the airline business and the oil business. And those are troubled industries. Uh, How do you rebut the presumption that if your clients are slowing, you have to slow? Well, actually, Jim, I, I think we had a, a great quarter. We ended up at uh, 43% growth in revenue, hitting $109 million in, in revenue, 53% growth in, in bookings. We passed the $400 million ARR mark. Uh, the last time we shared that number, we were at $200 million, uh, just seven quarters ago. We now have 37% of the global 2,000. These are the firms that are actually trying to prosecute data science and analytics to get to success in digital transformation. Uh, yes, in Q1, you know, there was a, a hard uh, stop in, in the second half of March. Uh, looking back at the quarter, we had some amazing customers that you would think wouldn't buy uh, in a situation like this. We, we sold the Carnival Cruise Lines when they didn't have uh, anyone on uh, ships in, in the latter part of March. We sold to uh, Chevron USA when uh, oil had hit an all-time low, and, and we sold to Caesars Entertainment when there wasn't a, a Caesars Casino open. So the good, the good news about this is that the impacted industries clearly see a need to recover with a, 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 the optics of data science and analytics, and Ultrix is the perfect platform to help them succeed. I couldn't agree more, and I think I think that you got hit like everybody in a week in March, and then since then, the fact that you put these clients in there 
showed me, you know, Chevron, you want that account more than any other account in the oil, in oil and gas. Now, you said some great stuff. Uh, this was a, I'm now I'm quoting from a J.P. Morgan Technology Media and Communication Conference, May 12th, virtual, of course. You said, if you take a look at COVID, for example, from start to, to finish to recovery, it's a data and analytics challenge. Explain that to people. Well, so for the first time in my career, I've seen politicians, mayors, governors, uh, the president, scientists, uh, data workers, uh, medical practitioners, all saying the same thing. What we need are more data, more analytics, better models. We need to automate this stuff because we got to update it every hour of every day if we're going to actually tame this thing. So if you, if you look at, at the COVID crisis, it really is, um, I, I think, instrumental in, in sharing what's happening in enterprises today. From the start of the, the pandemic, using all tricks to do things like uh, genome sequencing to understand the makeup of the virus that we then had to track using geospatial analytics to know when it would go where and how quickly and, and, and to try and manage uh, the, the spread, all the way to helping hospitals predict peak periods for ICU beds, for, for ventilators, for masks, helping supply chain partners who are making those uh, that PPE really understand how to modernize their supply chain since most of the supply chains have, have been decimated all the way to uh, what's happening post COVID uh, things like managing the trillions of dollars that are going from you know, central banks around the world to prop up uh, financial systems to helping the 33 million uh, people who've been displaced from their jobs. I, I saw a report today that the UN says that there's probably going to be, up to 300 million worldwide, and we're here to help those people as well. Well, you should talk about about your plan to help people uh, learn how to use uh, your your kind of program, because I think that this is yours, the future, obviously, the others, the past, and you're willing to upsell it. You're willing to tell people how to do it. Well, we're we're willing to tell them how to do it for free. So we launched a program called Adapt last Thursday. advancing data and analytics potential together. And the whole purpose was one of our employees said, how come we're not helping the people who have been displaced? And we put together a plan immediately that would allow any uh, unemployed or fur- furloughed worker in any industry anywhere on planet Earth to come to Altrix, get a free copy of our designer platform, put them into our learning systems. It's an amazing community of hundreds of thousands of people around the world who share and collaborate. We put them into our learning systems. We get them certified on our platform. We even give them scholarships. If they want to get a, a nano degree in business analytics in as little as 30 days in a partnership with Udacity, one of the leaders in online learning, these folks can revitalize themselves. They can make sure that they've got economic strength for the next go around. They can give themselves career optionality. The the one thing that everyone needs in the 21st century is a data science and analytics skill. And we're so excited that the 1,500 people at Altrix are willing to dive in and help not just our customers get back to health, but really drive uh, extra value for the, okay, the well, folks If you're listening, where should you go? Go to, the, go to Altrix or, or is there a web, separate website? Nope. nope. Go to Altrix.com. Uh, there's a, a bunch of links on the on the homepage. It's part of the Ultrix for Good program. Ultrix for Good is is a pillar we put together a few years ago. We, we currently have 400 uh, nonprofit organizations around the world in 38 countries, uh, and we're helping organizations bring dignity back to the homeless in urban uh, cities. We're helping them uh, 
rid themselves of, of malaria in Zambia. We're helping you know, protect endangered species, doing work around climate change. And this this cause now helps 300 million people who choose to join. We have, uh, we're, we're tracking about a uh, thousand registrants a day <clears throat> and we can't wait to hire some of these people and get them into our, our uh, workforce and that of our customers. All right. That's terrific. I knew you'd be doing stuff like that. That's your nature. I want to thank uh, Dean Stoker, chairman and CEO of Alarix. And look, this is a company, just ask any young person who has to do data and they will tell you, you must use this company. Bad Money's back in for break. It is time to have the light round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skiing. That is over the light round. Let's go with Orin in California. Orin. Baba Booyah, Jim. Okay. Hey, listen. I don't want to see our children get this thing. Let's do the right thing and follow the rules so we can uh, keep the upper hand on this virus. I, I got a kick out of you fake quirking and jerking, making it look like look like your network connection is frozen. A shout out to my buddy Al, who's been installing network systems like crazy because everyone's needing upgrades while they're working from home. And he says he can't acquire enough of them fast enough to install. So what do you think about the company Ubiquity? Well, I mean, look, we don't fool around. If you want enterprises, Cisco, and if you want individual, we're going to go with Zoom. We're not going to. I'll think this one. That's the way it works. You know, not on this show. Thank you, though. Austin in Ohio. Austin. Booyah, Jimmy Till. Yo, shaking. Mr. Kramer, what do you think of Callaway? Well, I mean, it's coming back. Golf's coming back. Um, you know what? I just told my wife. My wife's a golfer. I think this is an interesting level to get long this stock. I think there's going to be golf. It's actually, they figured out ways to do golf. So let's say yes to a stock to be liked very much before the pandemic. Uh, how about John in Maine? John. Hey, Jim. Hey, buddy. Um, I'm calling him about Halozyme Therapeutics. You know what? I, I, I was saying the other night that I, I worry. I mean, I, and I don't like Halo. We've had Halo. We've had Halo. Uh, but I, I've got to tell you, I sat down with, with Dr. Kafario the other day from Bristol Myers. And I, and I, I, I sat down with Abby. This, but they're both better. They're both better. I, I don't want to take on too much risk right here. Let's go to Steven in New York. Steven. Booyah. Jimmy Chill. Long time, first time. Thanks for all you do for us home gamers. I'm your guy. What's going on? I'm 29 and a neighbor of yours in Great Neck, New York. I'm calling today to ask you about a company you mentioned in a homework section back in February. The problem is it was coming off of a monster run from 20 to 100, and you've got to wait before pulling the trigger. Do you think now is a good time to start a position in cartolytics? Yeah, we did say that's exactly what we said. So I'm not going to back away. I'm going to say yes. This is what we've been waiting for. And when you finally get the pullback, you don't say, no, I want a lower price. Interesting call. Thank you for remembering Let's go to Allen in Texas. Allen. Booyah, Kramer, and greetings from the great state of Texas. You bet. What's going on down there? Your thoughts on the Mercado Libre. That is one great company. I typically don't want to, you know, like, oh, oh my God, it's up 777. (laughs) We got the Spotify, we got the Mercado Libre, and we got the Alibaba, and they're all, those are three foreign stocks, okay? And they're all good. They're all buys. I gave you a threefer. Why not? I'm in a generous mode. How about Brian and Maryland? Brian. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm good, Brian. How about you? 
Uh, like you always say, just trying to make some money. All right, I like that. Hey, I got a question. Yeah, I got a question. There's a company I've been looking at. They do a lot of work in the southeast. And when we talk about coming out of the recession, um, one word I've been hearing a lot is infrastructure. The CEO's name is Ward Nye. He's been with the company for 10 years. I, I, I love Wonder Ward. I love Ward. I, I, I like the company. But you see, right now we're going into a recession. We ain't coming out of it yet. And uh, we don't have an infrastructure bill. We don't have the $3 trillion that I want. We don't have We don't have anything. Uh, well, anyway. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. We're always on the lookout for COVID-19 stocks. In other words, stocks that actually do well even in the, pan- in the pandemic. And one of the best ones is S&P Global. Now, see, this is mainly a ratings agency for the bond market, but they also run all the S&P and Dow Jones indices. And they've got a market intelligence division that gives money managers some much needed, actually, I'd say, you can't live without data analytic tools. Right now, S&P Global is up nearly 10% for the year, including a monster 61% gain just from the March lows when we crashed. Because this is a fantastic time to be a ratings agency. You've heard about all these companies going to the fixed income markets to raise money over the past couple of months. And all these bond offerings need to be rated before anyone will touch them. When the company reported last month, the ratings revenues were up nearly 20%, which is why, unlike so many others, the stock's almost back to where it was trading at the February peak. So we have to ask, can it keep climbing? And you know I like this stock very much. Let's take a closer look with Doug Peterson. He's the president and CEO of S&P Global. Hear more about his company and prospects. Mr. Peterson, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, thanks for having me today. It's great to be with you, and it's great to see you again. Oh, same. Now, Doug, this was an exceptional quarter. You, There's been so much issuance. And uh, just if you can, please explain how the corporate debt market boom really does help S&P Global. Well, remember that this market right now is all about liquidity. Despite rates being low, spreads have gone up, but the absolute price that corporations are paying at the high quality end of the credit spectrum is quite low. And you see companies going out to look for liquidity. And and you think about it, it's not just liquidity that we're providing uh, with the ratings that go out. It's also research. It's the ratings themselves. We we see very high demand for the research that we're providing that's, that is driving people to our websites. Well, there's a moment in your earnings call, frankly, that it's that is just so stark about what you do, talking about uh, Delta and Ford and the integral nature that you are to whether they can raise money. If you can explain, those are two companies everybody knows, Doug. It really be interesting to explain what you did and how it interacted with the Fed. Well, the Fed came up with a program to provide liquidity to the markets. And one of the things they decided is that of March 22nd, all companies that had been investment grade would continue to be considered for the liquidity programs. And so a couple of those companies had already been downgraded to the double B range, but there was massive liquidity still available for companies like that. And we did the ratings. They were able to get the liquidity they needed in the market. And as you see, the markets themselves right now are really looking for this high quality credit uh, out there, but they're also looking for liquidity. The companies themselves are, they're not using this for investing. They're not using it necessarily uh, for stock buybacks. They're using this to have very strong balance sheets. All right. So how do you determine, because uh, you've got great, uh, great analysis, I know a bunch of them. How do you determine, say, for instance, what Carnival should get for its, uh, what's the rating of Carnival or, or Royal Caribbean or Norwegian Cruise Lines, areas that are really difficult to judge? 
Well, what we look at and our credit analysts look at is, is what are there's many factors. It's qualitative, it's quantitative, but it's the ability and the willingness of somebody to pay back their debt. And, and we look at these factors. And at the very beginning of the crisis, our credit researchers did some analysis looking at what were the sectors that would be most impacted by this downturn. There were going to be factors looking at travel, at different industries. And so the markets now are determining what will be the type of liquidity that they want to provide. Provide, and we're providing the research about the credit worthiness that goes along with that. Got it. OK, that's a great way to understand what you guys do. Now, there's another market which had a trillion dollars worth of issuance that I don't think people know that you are the, the company for. The, you launched last year domestic credit rating business in China, and it's your own company. It's wholly owned. How's that doing? Well, we were the first company that was allowed to have a license of a 100% owned financial institution in China. It's been over a year. It's going really well. We issued five ratings in, in the first quarter, and they range now, the ratings we've done range from AAA to B. They're foreign institutions. They're domestic institutions, financial institutions, regional banks, uh, as well as corporate. So we've been able to rate the entire spectrum of types of companies in China. We have a really strong team on the ground. It's all about the people. And even during this recent crisis where people are working from home, we've had hundreds and hundreds of calls with investors to explain what we're doing and also do those those ratings in the first quarter. No restrictions by the government, just trying to get it as right as possible. They're trying to get as right as possible. As you can see, the, the Chinese reformers in the financial markets, they're giving licenses to other financial institutions to own 51 percent and above uh, for their own institutions as well. So we think that we're on the very beginning of this trend where the Chinese financial regulators are going to be opening up their markets and looking for reform. And they want the foreign players to be there to bring the transparency, the high quality analytics, the, the things that we bring to the market. That's great. Now, uh, one last thing. You, uh, most companies didn't give guidance. They've withdrawn guidance. You gave three different scenarios. Uh, how do you really feel? I mean, if the, you, you, which one do you think is the most likely and which one do you think is the least likely? Well, we gave guidance this time. We, we thought that given that we have fantastic analysts in our company and research, we've got economists, we've got oil experts, our credit analysts. We wanted to say, well, what are they seeing about the markets mm -hmm. themselves? And let's apply it to ourselves. We're a data and analytic company, and we wanted to take that information that's produced by our own people and apply it to our company. So we looked at our guidance. We looked at a, a shorter term downturn, a downturn that go to the end of the third quarter, one till the end of the fourth quarter. Our guidance that we came out with is around the end of the third quarter. But we provided that sensitivity analysis because we think it's important that our investors see how we're thinking about this. We got great feedback from our investors for providing that guidance and that color and, the, and also showing a lot of detail about the factors that we use to look at that. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a strong balance sheet. We've got ample liquidity, but we're not immune from risk. And we right. felt it was important that we really sh uh, showed how that was. Yeah, uh, I thought it was out. just the most well done conference call. I found myself thinking, I'll just credit you guys because you've done more. You've done more work than anybody. You've got a great set of analysts. That's Doug Peterson, President and CEO of S&P Global. Always great to see you, sir. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Uh, guys, when you think about a company that is fintech, think about these guys. Stick with Craig. Coming up tonight, right after this, markets in turmoil. 
fashion designer Joseph Abood on the path forward and the business of America. Plus, want to see what your office might look like when you return? One expert shares his blueprints and the growing concerns over a possible shortage here in the U.S. of the antiviral drug Remdesivir. All tonight at 7 p.m. with Scott Wapner. Applied Materials reported after the close. Now, it's a big semiconductor equipment company, and it was a blowout number. And that is going to move the semis. I want to thank Bob Lang. Last night, gutsy call when the market was down, down 500. He said, buy the semis. Well, guess what? That was one of the great contrary calls, and it worked. So sometimes it doesn't pay to be totally negative, like so many people are, unfortunately. Stay open-minded, but remember, recession. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you to find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.